0: Hello, and welcome to Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. On this week's design discussion, game designers Peter Gooses and Michael Kelly will discuss a board game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Steve. I'm Steve. I'm here with
1: Peter for the first time. I've been looking forward to this for a while, because I've had the podcast with Colin and with Mike, and now finally with Peter.
0: Well, trust me, your expectations are probably raised
1: way too high if you're excited about it. <laughs> I'm just glad we're merging a
0: lot between the four of us. I'm really looking forward to that. Absolutely. When we first started, I was super excited just to have somebody filling in on the off weeks. I mean, I listened to your first couple episodes and I really liked what you were doing. That's why you know we reached out to you. But it's really become much more of a merger than I ever imagined it would be.
1: Agreed, yeah. And it's been really fun to see the different likes and dislikes and what we all can individually contribute to this. It's been it's been fun. We're looking forward to this.
0: So we have a couple of quick announcements real quick. Before we get started, we are going to be doing Forbidden Desert today, and our design discussion is going to be about games in a series. The third game in the Forbidden series is out, so we got Forbidden Island, which we've already talked about, today is Forbidden Desert, and now Forbidden Sky just came out at Gen Con as a little bit of a pre-release, and as a special treat, after we go through our top five for Forbidden Desert, I'm going to talk a little bit about the game I got to play earlier this year at Unpub of Forbidden Sky. Looking forward to it. Cool. And two other announcements real quick before we get going. Number one is, I know everybody's been super excited about our Lord of the Rings versus Arkham Horror LCG head-to-head Battle Royale. We finally got a date for that. That's going to be August 29th, which is a Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. It's going down like Donkey Kong. The last announcement I have real quick is we have set up a PayPal account. I am going to put the link in the show notes. We are not going to be talking about this every time. We had one of our Slack members request that we put up a PayPal account just because they wanted to send us some money. So thank you, Patrick. We are not going to sit here and beg for money every time we have an episode, but we did want to let you know that it's there. If you want to contribute, you can. Certainly all the money will go to, first of all, buying new equipment, paying for our hosting fees. But then if we have extra money, we'll probably buy some games with it that we can give away as prizes for you guys.
1: And just to be clear, even if you can't contribute, we're still going to be putting out the same content. So
0: don't feel obligated. Absolutely, and there will be no additional benefits for those who do contribute. If you're doing it, you're doing it out of the goodness of your own heart, and we appreciate it. If you can't, don't worry about that. Just continue to listen, and you know that's good enough for us. Couldn't say that any better. Cool. All right. Well, let's get started with Forbidden Desert. And I've decided, since we've got Steve here, we're going to make it a special dramatic reading of the theme for you guys. Bum, bum, bum. Your team of adventurers has been sent on a mission to excavate an ancient desert city and recover a legendary flying machine that is rumored to be powered by the sun. Moments before arriving at your destination, an unexpected sandstorm forces your helicopter to make a crash landing. Now, stranded in a vast desert and exposed to an unrelenting storm, your only hope for survival is to quickly excavate the city. Find the parts of the flying machine and rebuild it for your escape. If, however, any of your team expires from thirst or the storm gets too intense, your whole team loses and you become a permanent artifact of the Forbidden Desert. Bum, bum, bum. So this is the second game, as we said, in the Forbidden series. The first one being Forbidden Island. So you've gotten all the artifacts off the island. Now, you know, if your helicopter is going to crash somewhere, it's a good thing you're looking for a legendary flying machine. I mean, how convenient is that? It's super convenient. (laughs) So in this one, you are trying to put together the flying machine and then take off with it. And then you will be in the Forbidden Sky, which is the third part of the series. And again, we'll talk more about that later. So you are taking off in this legendary flying machine, headed for the clouds. All right, Steve, why don't you get the rules explanation for us? So how you win
1: this game is you need to first gather four parts to this flying machine, assemble them, locate the landing pad and escape and just like most co-ops you can lose in a number of different ways one of the ways you can lose is if you run out of thirst so this adds an additional component where every so often during the storm deck the sun will beat down on you and then you will need to drink some water if you're ever out of water in your water reserves that player will expire according to the dramatic reading that's right (laughs) and you will lose the game The other way you can lose is if you have to put a number of sand tiles on the board and you kind of run out of sand tiles, then you also lose. You're being buried under the sand. And the last way you can lose is just like Forbidden Island, there's also a dandy tracker. So as you continue playing the game, that's going to ratchet up. And as it ratchets up, you can draw more cards. And if it reaches the top of that track, you automatically lose as well because the storm is just too severe to recover. So, what do you do in this game? It kind of flows similarly to Forbidden Island, where you have four actions to take, and then you draw a number of storm cards equal to that tracker I mentioned. And the actions are kind of similar as well, where you will move, remove sand instead of shore up, as in Forbidden Island. So, remove sand, what's going to be happening is sand being placed on each of these locations, and you need to remove the sand before you can actually excavate or see what's at that location and flip the tile over. And excavate is flipping it over, of course. And then what you the reason why you're flipping these tiles over is you're trying to find clues to parts. And a clever thing about this game is there are two clues for every part you need to discover. So like I said before, there's four parts. So you need to find eight clues. And one of the clues will be pointing in the horizontal direction on this grid. And another clue will be pointing in the vertical direction on this grid. And the intersection of these two these lines is where the part is actually located. So you need to go there, pick up that part, assemble to the ship, and then find the launch pad and take off. And there's a few
0: other rules in there as well, but that's kind of the summary of how this plays. So for those of you who are joining us for the first time, thank you for joining us. What we're going to do now is talk about our top five things you should know about Forbidden Desert. And we start with number five, which is the least important thing in our minds. And we go all the way up to number one, which is the most important thing. So, Steve, being your first design discussion episode, why don't you start with your number five?
1: I'd love to. So my number five, I list it as bang for your buck, are basically what you get out of the money you pay for this game. So the MSRP for this game is around $27. And what you get in it is you get a lot of tiles. You get this really cool like toy, actually quite large, uh, ship, and all these really cool plastic components. And actually, I think the engine's even, like, metal, too. Yeah, it feels like it anyway. I think so, yeah. You get all this in this box, and it's definitely... I feel like I would pay a lot more than $27 for this, honestly. But I will say it's it wouldn't normally be pro for that Bank for Your Buck, but I will say it, turned, it dropped down to mix for me a little bit because I've been noticing my tiles and cards. The durability isn't normally what I like. I'm noticing a lot of them have nicks on them. And I don't think the uh, wear and tear is going to last too long. But for being as cheap of a game as it is, if you have to rebuy it, I, I'm, it's not going to bother me any. Yeah. How many times have you played it? I've only played it like between five and ten times. Okay. Like around six or seven, I think. I I uh, only record plays of games I own. I played it a few times before I actually owned it, so I'm not sure exactly where that falls.
0: Gotcha. Um, but since I've owned it, I've played at, at least six times, so... All right. So, yeah, I was wondering how long before you started noticing those nicks. And you're a sleever, too, normally, right?
1: I am. But this one I haven't sleeved. That's because the insert is actually pretty good in this game. Uh, They have a nice insert where everything has its rightful spot. And the game is so cheap where it's like, well, do I spend a lot more money when I could just rebuy the game later?
0: So I figure if I need to, I'll just just reinvest. And just in case you guys don't know, I am not a Sleever because I feel that way about pretty much every game. If I need to rebuy it, that means I've gotten a lot of love and care out of it, and I don't mind rebuying a game. For me, it's just such a pain to sleeve everything. So, I mean, I know this game, it wouldn't be too bad, 50-some cards. But I realized when I was sleeving every single game, it was like half of my gaming life was spent sleeving. So, Peter, what is your number five? So, my number five is there's a little pusher luck in this game, and it's not a lot. But there is a little push your luck with two factors. Number one is when those sun beat down cards come out, there are two factors that can save you from them. Number one is if you are in one of these tunnels, there are three of them total in the game. If you're in one of these tunnels and the sun beats down, then you don't have to lose any water for that turn and you also have these gear cards that you collect throughout the course of the game and some of them will also give you like this solar shield that will protect you and anyone on your space from sun beats down so you really have to determine when you want to hide from the sun when you're thinking that some of these sun cards might come out and not and the second part of that is there are three tiles on the board that have these little oasis pictures in them. And two of the three have water on them, and one of them has absolutely nothing on it. So you go there, if you're pushing your luck a little too hard, and you don't have very much water left by the time you finally do make it to these oasis tiles... And you kind of are tempted to do that because the more people on the tile, the more benefit you get from it, because every single person on the Oasis tile, when it's flipped over, gets two water at the same time. So they tempt you a little bit to kind of push your luck and go to these tiles. And I think that's a really neat mechanism in how they do that.
1: Yeah, I agree. There's definitely a push your luck trying to find those tiles. And also how that sand moves and covers up those tiles, too, will help adjust your strategy a bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, so Steve, what is your number four? My number four,
1: I think I'm going to list as a con. I, I'm not sure. I would have to play more to be certain, but I'm going to list it as character balance. I feel like one of the characters in particular is weak, and that being the meteorologist. And that one, you can spend actions to not draw as many storm cards, and you can spend an action to kind of look at the next upcoming storm cards and, and reorganize one of them to, to the bottom. And I feel like you're kind of delaying the inevitable. You're not really making forward progress as much as the other characters where they can actually achieve those goals. So I'm not convinced that one is that good. And the Water Carrier, I feel like, is one of the stronger characters potentially. Actually, the Navigator is probably the strongest. Being able to move people uh, three spaces quickly, one action is huge. Uh, but the Water Carrier, if you're struggling with the Thirst, you throw him in the team and you won't have to worry about that loss condition not if you if you can play it right. So for me the character balances seem quite right. If you're playing with lower player counts, not huge deal because you can kinda of avoid the meteorologists. if you play with higher player counts, it would be a little bit harder to avoid that.
0: Yeah, actually my number four is also the variation of characters in the game. And for me it's a little bit of a mix as well. I agree with everything you said. The bigger issue for me with the meteorologists, because I've said this before on many podcasts, for a co op game I don't really care if these characters are 100% balanced because that actually allows you to handicap the game a little bit. If you're very experienced with the game, you could take some of the harder characters to use. And if you have somebody new to the game, I actually prefer, and I don't know that any, there are definitely some that do it. Sentinels of the Multiverse does it where it gives you a skill level requirement or not requirement, but you know, it, it tells you which are easier and harder. Actually, Spirit Island does that as well. So I do like when there are different difficulties of heroes in the game, and I don't mind even if they are not balanced, where some are just way harder to use than others. The problem I have with the Meteorologist is it's just not fun. It's not fun to take no actions to draw no cards. It's not fun to do one thing. So that's when it really bothers me. It doesn't bother me when they're not balanced, but I do like that there's a variety of characters in here, although four of them do deal with movement. Because there is such a limited amount of things you can do in the game, I think there was very much a limitation on what they could make as character powers. There just isn't that many gears to turn in this game. But I think they did a good job with what they had, and I do like the fact that you're going to place somebody different every game and that changes up the variability a little bit from game to game i agree yep all right steve
1: what's your number three my number three is going to stem from my user experience background a little bit and that's the storm movement confusion what do i mean by that so with the storm deck you flip these cards over and on most of the cards you'll see a picture of a number of squares and an arrow pointing in a in a direction could be like north south east or west in the instruction book, it, they do a good job and make it clear on what that means. That means you are moving the tiles in that location. So kind of how it works is there's a a void or empty space in this five by five grid. And that empty space represents the storm itself. And so if you're able to move a tile into that void, by upon the cards direction, that's that's what that's supposed to depict. However, what I've found out when talking with other people who haven't read the rule book, like in instructing them, they often get confused on what that means visually. And this is, again, to the, the user experience of, of it. And I think the graphic design could have been improved. So some people look at that card and think, am I moving the storm, the void itself, to the right three spaces and not the tiles to fill in that void three spaces? And ultimately, it doesn't really matter which way you interpret it as long as you're consistent. But I feel like they could have just taken one extra step to make that clear. Like maybe even fill the void with a, a storm icon. It doesn't have to be something fancy like the plastic they create. It could be a simple token as an option. Maybe do something like that and then change the card so it makes it more clear that you're moving the storm in that direction. Or, I don't know, just change the, the iconography to make it a little more clear. So that would be my number three, that storm movement confusion.
0: Wow, we are simpatico tonight. I actually said they did a good job overall with their graphic design. That was my however moment. (laughs) Although it's funny because everything you said about how to fix it is true. It doesn't matter as long as you pick one way or the other. I personally do it the opposite of what it tells you to do in the rules. To me, it makes more sense for the storm to move right if the arrow is pointing right. So I do it opposite, but it doesn't matter as long as everybody is on the same page and everybody is doing the same thing. So as long as we can agree, and typically we'll have one person at the table moving the storm anyway. We have one person drawing the cards, one person moving the storm, one person putting the sand tiles out. So kind of everybody has their own job. As long as the same person is moving it in the same direction, I think you're pretty much okay with that. But the things I did like about the graphic design is a lot of the important information on the tiles is located in the corners, and the sand itself is cut out in such a way that no matter how you put it on, you can see the corners of the tiles. So you really know what the important information is, even if it's piled up with sand. And I thought they did a great job of doing that. I thought it was a really neat graphic design choice in how they did that part of it. But I agree with you with the sand cards, it does look weird. But as long as you do it consistently, it doesn't matter. So my number three, we're, we're thinking the same way, is the graphic design. Get off my brain wavelength. So.
1: <laughs> but no, I, uh, I agree with the sand markers. Having that cuts in the corners is a brilliant design. So, Yep.
0: All right, so what's your number two? My
1: number two is the difficulty. I'll list this as mixed. And what I mean by that is I find this game very challenging. And I think even I've heard some comments online that even Matt Leacock, designer himself, says that this game is designed to be more challenging to some of his other ones and so i lose this game a lot and i know that that can be a little bit of a deterrent to some people especially since that this is really designed in my opinion as a casual game like it's very clean very easy to get people joining playing it and if you wind up losing a lot they may not be motivated to keep trying it but for some people that is a motivation to keep going back to a trim and like okay i want to win this one let's play it again let's play it again so it depends on what group you're in. So that's why I left it as mix. That's why it makes people know this is a pretty challenging
0: game. I think I've only won it like once or twice. So <laughs> Really? And I win it almost every time. It's interesting. And I don't know what I'm doing differently. Maybe I've been cheating this whole time. I don't know. Now, how many people do you normally play with? I play with the lower
1: counts generally. So normally around, well, solo potentially where you play two characters. And I played up to four. Um, but generally it's been the three and two player
0: accounts. And what difficulty level are you setting it at? Uh, normally normal. Really? Okay. Yeah, because I played two games with my son in the last couple of days, and I played one with my son and daughter, so two and three players, and we won all three of them. And so that's really interesting. And one of the interesting things to me is it doesn't really matter too much how many people you have in games where your characters are getting leveled up and getting more powerful as the game goes on, or even Pandemic or Forbidden Island, where you're building up these hands of cards and it really matters what you get, it matters. But in this game, it really doesn't because everybody's really doing the same thing. They're trying to clear sand and flip over tiles. So for me, that's one of the pros of the game is it doesn't really matter much. And this isn't on my top five. I guess it's an honorable mention. It doesn't matter how many people are in the game; it should be about the same difficulty, I think.
1: I could also just be really bad at this game. Which there's a few games in my collection that I'm just horrible at,
0: so <laughs> that could definitely be the reason why. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's interesting because there isn't a whole lot you could get wrong as far as rules go. So I wonder why we've had such vastly different experiences with it. But who knows? All right, well, my number two is that you get to go through the whole deck. So the reason I bring this up, and I didn't realize how much I actually liked this until I played Forbidden Sky. So a little bit of spoiler alert here. In Forbidden Sky, there's a card that does bad things to you, as all the cards do here in Forbidden Desert. But at the same time that flips up, you reshuffle the deck, And so it leads to a lot more swinginess in luck. And I like the foreknowledge you have here. So for example, as we said earlier with the push your luck mechanic, if you haven't had any of those sunbeats down cards, it might be smart to start running and trying to get into some shelter. I like the consistency of how the difficulty is going to ramp up throughout the game. Now, I will say there is still a little bit of card luck with this. And that's also part of the swinginess of the game. I've certainly had storms that'll sit in the corner for like, three or four cards in a row. And so you're not really increasing the difficulty as that happens. And so for this, for me, it's a little bit of a mix because yes, there isn't as much swinginess as most of these games. But I do feel when it's swingy, it actually tends to be swingy in your favor and it really decreases the tension because you're not really building a whole lot up. Because if that storm does get stuck in a corner and, you know, you draw two or three cards and nothing happens, especially if you draw a card that's supposed to move it three in one direction, because some of the cards move it one and some move it three. If you draw a card that is supposed to move it three and it's already against that side of the board, the storm doesn't go anywhere. Nothing happens. And so, there can be a lot of swinginess because of that, but not as much as most of these games, so it doesn't bother me that much. If anything, again, I think it actually swings toward making the game easier when you get some of these draws.
1: Well, Peter, you can uh, tie it into my number one actually, which was uh, lucky flips from the storm deck was my number one, and that was also <laughs> mixed. <laughs> so it looks like we're lining up a little bit here as well. Uh, so yeah, I I'm gonna mimic a lot of what you said, where I feel like the difficulty can fluctuate exactly what you said if the storm gets stuck in the edge or the, especially the corners you can get a lot of breaks from the storm because it just isn't moving and you really don't have any control over that it just kind of is how the the cards fall and that could be both good and bad i mean it makes it so that even if you set the same difficulty level and the same character load uh, character set the game will play out differently each time but at the same time If you're trying to play at a higher difficulty level, you may need some luck on your side to to win it in that sense. Right. So it might make it easier. So, I mean, a little bit of a mix, not pro or con, but definitely something to be aware of. But, yeah, that was
0: my uh, number one. What about you? you, Peter? So my number one is every tile is useful. And so this is a major pro for me. And actually, every tile is useful except for one which is a little bit frustrating because on a lot of the tiles, when you flip them over, even if there is nothing there that you need. So when you flip them over, you're really looking for a couple of things. You're looking for the helipad because you need that to get out of there, or the launch pad, whatever they call it. You're also looking for these clue tiles, which point you in a certain direction, either horizontally or vertically, as Steve had said. And if you get two of the same parts, so if you get two of the propeller ones, you know, one horizontal and one vertical, that points to the spot where the propeller is going to be. So you're looking for those throughout the game, and when you don't get them in a lot of games, that can be frustrating, but in this game, you actually get gear, and gear is some of the best stuff in the game. There are jetpacks that'll fly you anywhere you want to go. There's the dune blaster that totally takes all the sand off of one tile, which is amazing. There are the sunscreens, as we were talking about earlier, that block you from losing water at certain points throughout the game. I don't remember, do the tunnels have gear on them as well? Yes, they do. Yeah, so I mean, you find a tunnel, those are amazing, because they have, there are three benefits to them, really. Number one is you get gear, number two is it protects you from the sun, and number three is if you have multiple tiles flipped up with tunnels on them, you can move back and forth between them. So there's, I mean, those tiles are really good, but every tile feels like it's useful to progressing you toward winning the game. Now, at the same time, The negative side of that, I guess, to one degree, which I don't consider negative at all, is you do need to flip pretty much every tile in order to win the game. For me, it's really neat because you always feel good when you're excavating one of those tiles, and that is kind of the major action in the game and what you're trying to do. So it's good that you feel good every time you're doing that. I don't know why they made the decision to make the water tile that you flip not give you something it seems like a weird decision as the only tile in the game that doesn't give you anything, especially because it's teasing you saying, hey, look at me, look at me. Typically, you're not going to flip it unless you've done a lot of work to do it. So it is a little weird to me that that's the only one that doesn't give you gear or anything. But whatever. I mean, that that doesn't bother me so much.
1: Yeah, that's the Mirage tile. So you'll find a water well and one of them is a mirage of a whale. It's not actually there. But there's some awesome tools that really help. And one thing I really do like about those tools and the gear you keep mentioning is that they're all free actions to do. And you can play them at any time for the most part. That really opens up the windows for uh, participation even outside of your own turn.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And they even have a character that does that. Every time they move, they can move somebody with them. And then there's another character, as you said, that can move a different character three spaces. So they've definitely done some cool things with the movement in this game and trying to keep people involved, even when it's not their turn. All right. So Steve, final thoughts time. So I have
1: a lot of cons and mix points in here. But despite that, I actually do like the game. I do recommend it. The price points. Excellent. The component that the toy factor is really awesome. I my mean, my son loves this game. Um, he's only three. He doesn't really play correctly, but he likes pulling out the, the big boat or the flying ship, I guess, is what it is, and playing with those pieces. And we pretend we're uh, we're moving along and excavating tiles. So I'm looking forward to when he can play it correctly. But it's a quick game. Doesn't take very long to play. Yeah, I definitely recommend it for that price point. It's worth owning. The only kicker is it's in a tin box. And that doesn't bother me much. I think the tin's actually kind of nice, but you have to be careful how you store it. You can't put any heavy games on top of it because the tin is kind of flimsy. it won't support the weight very much. And I know some people don't like having tin boxes in their collection with all the other cardboard. It kind of breaks the aesthetics of it. But other than that, I definitely recommend this one. What about you, Peter?
0: I don't like it as much as Island. Let's start with that. I know a lot of people feel the opposite. They feel like this is a more gamery game. The big thing that turns me off to this game, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm going to recommend this as well. So I'm getting into a couple of cons here as kind of like extra points, but I do like the game. I think it's great for families, as you've said. But the one thing for me, it's funny that you said you thought the game was super hard and you lose it a lot because I really never feel pressure in the game. There are an awful lot of sand tiles there. And if sand builds up somewhere, I don't really care that much usually because I'll just wait and blast it with a dune blaster later in the game. So I never really get a sense of dread in this game like I do in Forbidden Island as like, oh no, I don't want this tile to come up again because then the card's going to get pulled from the deck and you know the tile itself will be gone, so it'll be harder for me to move around. I never really feel that with this one, especially with so many characters with movement powers. One of them can move on top of dunes, another one can move diagonally, so even if a couple tiles pile up, you can still like move around them. So I don't get that sense of growing dread the way I do with Forbidden Island. But I think that's also a positive if you're playing with younger players. So they never feel really anxious about it at any point. So, I mean, that could be a pro or a con. And I also, you know, the swinginess of this game, if the storm gets stuck in the corner, I do think that that, again, leads to those moments where you're not really that dreaded about what's coming up next. Because, you know, if it's in a corner, two of the four directions are not going to move the storm at all. And so kind of count on that at least once or twice a game. It seems like it happens every game where it just gets stuck in a corner and nothing really happens for a couple of turns. So those are my only negatives about the game. But again, I think for younger players, that'll be really good. And I think it's funny that people describe this as the more gamery game. I actually find Island to be much more tense experience for me. And I mean, there are only four possible actions in this game. And really, all you're trying to do is flip over these tiles. I mean, you really want to just flip over every tile. So every turn you can you're trying to flip something over, so for me, the decisions aren't as strong as with Island, but I can see how people could see it the other way. Doesn't mean I don't recommend this game though, in fact, I highly recommend it, especially if you're playing with younger gamers or with non gamers, because anybody's going to be able to pick this game up and figure it out very, very quickly.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I, uh, I'll echo the same thoughts about the tension. I, while the difficulty definitely ramps up in Forbidden Desert. As the game goes on, I don't necessarily feel like it ramps up with the tension like in Forbidden Island. Forbidden Island, the difficulty and tension ramp up the same rate in that game for me. Right. And then the other thing I'll mention that's a, a difference between the two of them is Forbidden Island. You can actually change the layout of the island itself to add some variance and some difficulty in that sense. Absolutely. And I don't think you could do that in Desert. I think you always have to have that 5x5 five five grid.
0: Yeah, I mean, somebody might figure out a way to do it. Maybe you could have a longer island, or but it's certainly not as easy to do as with island. I would say if you own island, you should certainly pick up Desert. It is a different enough experience, although it can be played with the same kind of people. It says ages 10 and up, but there's no way. I, I mean, you could play this with a 5-year-old or maybe even a 4-year-old. There's no real reading. The only reading is these gear cards you're getting, but it's a cooperative game. You put them face up on the table, so you certainly can tell them what the card does and give them the option of when they want to use it. I definitely think this is something you could play even with younger gamers.
1: Well, I agree completely. Those pictures are large. It would be easy for them to follow even though you
0: can't read them. So. Absolutely. All right, so let me get into Forbidden Sky a little bit. Now, before we get started, did you want to ask any questions beforehand or you want to wait till I go through the description of, of my play and then go from there?
1: No, go ahead and go through your description. Um, I saw it at Gen Con, so I'll have some questions afterward, but I kind of want to hear your thoughts first.
0: All right, so Forbidden Sky, and again, this is an initial impression. It was a prototype copy that I played. Uh, Matt Leacock brought it to Unpub this year, and so I got a chance to sit down with him. You guys probably heard the interview. If not, go back and listen to it. He gives a little bit of details in there, but I'm really going to get into how the game is played now that it's fully been released and people have copies of it. So the way the game works, and I don't remember every single action in the game, but it's very simple as well. You have just a few options for actions. One of the actions you can do is draw a tile. So unlike Forbidden Desert or Forbidden Island, there is no map at the beginning of the game. You really just start with one tile in the middle of the board, and that's kind of your starting tile where you're going to move off of after that. And everything else is kind of a tile placement game. And so you're drawing tiles as an action in the game, you can draw a tile. For another action, you could place a tile down adjacent to where you are. And the goal of this is you're trying to create this circuit around the board, and the difficulty is increased or decreased in this game by the number of parts you need to add to your circuit. So there are these nodes around the board, and for the larger nodes, you're going to need four tiles placed adjacent to each other in a certain pattern, and for medium nodes, you're going to need two, and for small nodes, they'll just be placed on one tile itself. And they do have to be close enough to each other that you can connect them by these metal connectors. Because you are actually creating a circuit in this game, and one of the coolest parts about the game is once this circuit is complete and you complete it back to this rocket ship, the goal of the game is to find a launch pad. And again, you just need to find certain number of tiles with this certain shape on it that you can put together to build the launch pad. And once you do that and you connect up to the launch pad and everybody's on the launch pad. Now they do make it a little bit trickier in this game to do it. Everybody has to be on the launch pad as you complete your circuit. So you you can't really complete the circuit and then have everybody run back like you can in some of the Forbidden Games. You have to complete it as you get there. Well, that makes sense. Otherwise, the rocket's going to take off without you, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So now the way the bad stuff happens in the game is there are two ways you can die. You almost have two health trackers. So similar to the water in here, your two health trackers are your life points, and you lose life points whenever lightning strikes and you're standing on a circuit. Now, there are circuits pre-printed on the board, and there are also circuits that you're building yourself. So you kind of have to trace a path from these lightning rods that you're also building on the board to the circuits themselves, and you kind of have to see where the lightning strikes and if it would hit anybody. And a lot of the game, you're really trying to figure out, okay, how do I stay away from these circuits in case lightning does strike? So that's one way you can lose. And the other way you can lose is there'll be wind blows cards that'll blow you toward the edge. And if you ever get blown off of the edge of a tile, you have to use a rope in that situation. And so you have a, a rope counter and a health counter. And so you have these two different counters in the game that really are your life totals. So you can lose basically by losing either of those counters. I'm sure there are other ways to lose, but I can't remember. So being the cocky people we are, we played on, I think, Expert the first time we played. So we're playing it and we're actually doing really well. Because if you don't connect any of the circuit to these lightning rods early in the game you're not really taking damage throughout the course of the game. And there are ways to prevent this lightning damage, similar to the Sun Shield in Forbidden Desert. There are cards you can play, and there are also spaces on the board that have these lightning cages that'll protect you from it. And also, same thing for the rope. There are these cages you can be in that'll help you from getting pushed. So most of the game, we did not take any damage with any of our characters. We were playing a full four-character game. We were running around putting the circuit together. So we were building the circuit on the outside. We just never connected it to the lightning rods. So we're doing this for the full game and it was going great. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, we've got this circuit almost completed. We needed one more lightning rod and then we need to get on the ship. So we said, okay, time to start connecting the lightning rods. I'm sure a lightning rod tile will come up. The rest of us will work on getting that together. And we sent one person who had the most life in the game over to connect the tiles. Cause we figured there's no real way to connect them and run out at the same time. Maybe there was, but we had to connect like two or three. And so we're like, well, it's okay. Like that person should be fine. They have the most life in the game. They haven't been hurt at all. Well, just as the luck of the cards. So the one thing that this game does have is lightning strikes card, which are the ones that give you damage if you're standing on the circuit. One of those lightning strike cards that lets you, that makes you reshuffle all the cards and start drawing again from the beginning. And of course, we got one of those twice. So the person with full health, one turn they needed to survive till they got to their turn again, and they died in that one turn. So the game was going great. We were having a lot of fun the whole time, and it just felt like the air went out of the room when that happened. It's like we did everything right for the whole game now. There are ways we could have countered that. We could have given them one of those lightning surge shields to protect them when they went over there. So it wasn't 100% the game's fault, obviously. There are things we could have done and things we would do differently next time. But I'm not sure that I love the fact that you could be doing well the whole game and lose it before you get your turn back again. And we knew it was a chance of it happening, but it was not a huge chance of it happening. So it was something we kind of gambled on. But looking back at it, like most of the cards in the deck are lightning strike cards. So it was a little disheartening for us to feel like we were doing so well and then lose the game on one turn. So that's my initial impressions. I did like the game. It was fun. The parts that were a little wonky were following the circuits to try to figure out where lightning is going to strike. And then the part I liked least was the fact that you could just lose in one turn being full health before you even get to go again. But overall, I'm going to buy it, no question. It is a good part of the series. I love the tiling aspects of the game. I love that you kind of control your actions there. Like, you can draw, and you can have up to a hand of three tiles before you even start placing them. So you're taking actions to draw tiles. You're taking actions to put the tiles on the board. That part of the game was really neat and really cool, and it was really fun to play with. So, Steve, do you have any thoughts or questions after hearing uh, my experience with the game? So I was looking
1: at this game at Gen Con, and I couldn't help but notice that it doesn't seem to be in a tin box
0: anymore. Is that correct? Yeah, it's in a cardboard box from what I understand. Again, I played a prototype copy of the game, but from what I understand, it's going to be in a cardboard box.
1: And I guess the other question I have is I wasn't able to take a close look at that, but how do the actual nodes work? Is it a metal plate with magnets, or how, how do you make those actual physical connections of this electrical circuit?
0: Yeah, so from what I understand, there are going to be magnets in the game, and so I do think this one's going to have a higher price point than any of the other games. There's going to be magnets, there's going to be metal strips that you're connecting. So if you make your nodes too far apart, you're not going to be able to connect them with the metal strips, and it won't be a valid circuit. So you need to find another way to do it. So you are going to have to pay a little bit of attention to that as you're going along. I don't know if they're magnets or not, or if they're just little metal discs. I mean, they were wood in the prototype copy that I had. So clearly that wasn't going to be the final components. So, but from what I understand, you make this circuit with these metal strips, and then once you connect it to the rocket ship, there's going to be some cool, like, victory noises that come out of the rocket ship. So you are going to need batteries for it. And it's got kind of a, I mean, like all the games in the series, it's got kind of a cool toy factor to it.
1: Yeah, I love that part of these games. I couldn't help but notice that this game also has a jetpack tool. And I feel like, is every Forbidden game going to have a
0: jetpack in it? (laughs) That's the way they're tying the series together, man. There are jetpacks in the Forbidden games. I guess that is part of, you know, what they're doing with it. And again, I think it's probably only like four to six actions possible in the game. It's drawing a tile, placing a tile, moving... And I can't even remember what the other one would possibly be. Oh, connecting two nodes. So you have to take an action to do that. So yeah, I mean, it's really going to be very straightforward, fit in the series in that way. I think the complexity is probably a little above desert. Like I said, the most complex thing in the game is trying to figure out what the circuits are and where lightning's striking and where it's carrying throughout these circuits. Because there's some circuits printed on the board already, and then there are... And they'll connect between tiles, too. So it's not like it's, you know, oh, if you're on this tile, you're definitely getting it. Like you have to follow the circuits across multiple tiles to see exactly where lightning's stretching out to, as well as if you start connecting your nodes, then those nodes have circuits going off of them as well. So following that was a little more complex than any of the bad stuff that happens in the other games. But beside that, it's pretty straightforward.
1: Would you also say that this is a family friendly game as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you are not the one that has to run it or figure out where those lightning nodes are going, and maybe it's not going to be as complex as I remember it being, but I do remember thinking at first, oh my gosh, because there's multiple lightning rods on the board too. Like the goal of each mission is you have to have like, depending on the difficulty, I think we had to have four lightning rods on the board, plus a certain number of large nodes, medium nodes, and small nodes. And so by the time you get in all that stuff on the board and then you start connecting the circuit together... You know, there, there's a little bit of calculation, but it's not going to be the end of the world. As long as one person understand it, then the group should be fine.
1: That sounds great. I'll be looking forward to this. I'm pretty sure I'm picking this up as well. I was trying to pick it up at Gen Con, but there were only a few copies available, and they sold out almost immediately every day. So I'll just pick it up when it hits wider release.
0: Yep. No, I'm looking forward to it, too. I mean, I just want to complete the series. I want to have all of them. I think it'd be cool to play Island, then Desert, then Sky, back to back to back, and see if we can beat all of them. And maybe they'll even have, like, similar characters, or maybe we'll just stick with a certain color, whatever color you get in the first game you're kind of stuck with through the series. So we'll see how that works out.
1: That'd be kind of fun. And those, all these games seem relatively short, too, like, less than an hour-ish about. Right. So you should be able to do them. You can play them all in one night, even.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I will say my one big thing with Sky, my big negative about like losing when it's not your turn, I think that goes down with when the difficulty goes down. So if you're playing on easy or medium levels, you're not going to have so many card draws between your turns because you're not having to build as big of a map. So I think a lot of that would go away with easier difficulty levels. It just bothered me at the the highest difficulty level. But, you know, we asked for it ourselves, too. (laughs) Sounds fun. Thanks for the overview of Forbidden Sky, Peter. Absolutely. All right, so let's get into our design discussion on game series. Now, there aren't a lot of game series out there right now. I think Matt Leacock might even own that niche of the market himself, kind of like the Legacy games with Rob Davio. The game series seem to all be pandemic-related or Forbidden-related right now, anyway.
1: Well, the other one I'll mention that's, growing it's currently only two in the series and now captain is dead is definitely a series yep so that's the other one that jumps out
0: and a lot of times they're more expansions so fantasy flight is famous for this where they'll make a base game and they'll have a lot of expansions for it but certainly stronghold did it with survive and survive space attack so they're not the same game but i mean they're certainly related and so today we're just going to talk about some of the pros and cons about putting games in a series and even things that To find games in a series so you've played captain is dead and it's follow-up game what do you what do you think did they do a good job of making them feel like they're in a series
1: that one i would say yes for sure and i think one of the major reasons for that is the characters are similar between them like if the character power you could use and used in the first game didn't really fit in the second one to lock down when you're in prison they changed it so you were still useful but it still felt right for that type of character. Like, you can imagine that character would have that skill set. And on top of that, because these are ideally played back-to-back if you're trying to put them together the series, the second game, you get these additional veteran cards, which is thematically cool because, yeah, you already had this previous experience, so now you're actually a little bit more skilled than before. So for me, definitely that series, I felt like they linked them well together.
0: Yeah, and the Forbidden series doesn't link it as closely as far as, I mean, thematically, they're kind of shoving it in now where the first one you were in a helicopter, you take off and then you crash in the Forbidden Desert and then you're taking that airship into the sky. I don't know if they had planned that from the beginning where they're going to be able to be played back to back to back. But I think the one thing they do really well is they kept them about the same difficulty level as far as not difficulty to win or lose, but difficulty as far as how to play the game. You only have four possible actions in the game. In each of them, you're taking four actions and then drawing a bad card. So if you've played one, you feel like you could play the other ones. Now, did Captain is Dead feel that way? Did you have an easier time playing the second game in the series because you had played the first one? The base rules
1: are very similar, but the game plays very differently. So kind of okay i mean this it's entirely different puzzle you're trying to solve and it feels a lot different especially how the alerts come out but like the same base actions like you have four actions for all the forbidden series you still have the same types of actions in the, the captain's dead
0: yeah and pandemic i think does that as well and another one clank we thought of is very similar as far as what actions you can do you're still doing deck building it's the Environment you're running in, or whatever else, even desert and island. I mean, the, even the actions, you could probably correlate them one to another. I think Sky is going to be the most deviated from the other two, but again, I think they can be played by a similar audience. And people who are fans of one, they keep consistency of artwork and things like that. So here's the most tangential one I could think of Gloomhaven and founders of Gloomhaven. They're clearly building off of the hype surrounding Gloomhaven or the, not even just hype, because hype is a negative term, but just the success of Gloomhaven and building a second game around it that really didn't have anything to do with the first game. So I think you can go that way too. And I'm not sure that those will be as successful because I think part of the benefit of having a series is you want to get your fans who like the first one to come in and get the second one. And if you stray too far away from what your first core gameplay is, then I think you actually might get some people who are mad about their purchases. And you never want that as a designer.
1: I'd also say that developing that connection to that series is is significant as well. And I'll mention that another one, uh, Fantasy Flight, who created this Tyrannath universe where they've done Descent, Rune Wars, Runebound, and Legacy Dragonhold. And they're all in the same universe, but... If you have the players invest in that, it can really sell well. But in this case, I don't think they did a good job of that. Where I feel like it's kind of a a generic fantasy theme, and people generally don't have a good feeling where the backstory and how these characters interact. So you don't feel that connection to it. Yeah, they're setting the same theme, but it doesn't really draw people into the other games where we're like, hey, I know this character, I know the setting. And now they're going to take this character in the setting that I like to another game. I feel like I'd be more likely to buy it. So I think with how Fancy Flight is trying to explore that more in a narrative form like Legacy Dragonhold, I think was a smart decision from that standpoint so that they can envelop people into that world a little bit. That's one significant thing you need to do
0: when looking at these series games, in my opinion. Well, again, I remember at one point I bought Runebound, or one of the games, so I could get character cards for a different game. And so they did that as well, where they linked, I forget which two games it was, it might have been Descent and Runebound, or it might have been Rune Wars and Runebound, but they really did some cross-functional things. And even for Arkham Horror Living Card Game, if you own some of the other Mansions of Madness, Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror, they use the same characters over and over. So if you want to use minis in those games, you certainly, the nice part is you only need to paint them up once, right? Because a lot of them, (laughs) and the nice part for them is they're going to save money on mold costs and things like that if they're using similar miniatures between the games or the same miniatures between the games, they certainly don't have to build a whole new mold for it. So there are some synergies there between the games. I don't feel like they push it. Because they call them different things. I mean, Runebound and Rune Wars obviously has the similar name. And certainly in the Android series, they use the same name for Android, Android Netrunner. And those games had nothing to do with each other. But with Descent and Runebound and all of those, yes, they're putting them in the same universe. But at least they didn't kind of trick people by calling them the same name. And actually, Energy Empire, which is Manhattan Project and Manhattan Project, use the same name to kind of mm-hmm. link games in series, so I guess there are more of these games in series than I had realized.
1: yeah, I think it's a smart marketing move because if you like one i, I at least for me I, f- I feel like I'm more likely to be interested and in, in investigate or even just buy it straight up if I like the game well enough so.
0: And one thing I do like about it is that it's typically going to be the same publisher and designer combination. So if nothing else, it's got that link to itself. Uh, Just as a game purchaser, I feel like I know I can trust this combination. They did something good before and they really don't probably want to ruin their own brand by making a bad game. So a lot of times I feel like second and third games in the series, they may even put more time and attention into to make sure that they're not diluting the brand too much
1: yeah and that's very true with me i've mentioned a few times about the uh, tiny epic series where the themes are kind of all over the place they don't really have too many themes that are similar between the games with the exception of tiny epic kingdoms and defenders but i know it's the same publisher same designer i know the form factor is going to be the exact same size box and i know they're going to have a few features like always have the ability for solo play and so those are strong contenders for me because I travel a lot for work and it's just really easy to throw one or two of those in my bag. And I have some options if I'm in the hotel room late, late at night and want to
0: unwind. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So, I mean, I think getting this into a little bit of a design discussion, I think as a designer, if you do have a hit game, it is smart to try to build off of that brand equity you've created. I do think word of warning, word of caution, though, is I would make sure that the games are related If you are trying to get your audience from the first game to buy the second game, you want to make sure it's a game that that audience is going to want to play, because we know not every game is for every player, so you don't want to go from a heavy dungeon crawl game, I hate to pick on Gloomhaven here, but you probably don't want to go from a heavy dungeon crawl game to a heavy Euro game. Those are different audiences who are going to want to play those games. There are some omni gamers that will play both, but... If you're building off the equity of something, you kind of want to build it for that audience that liked your first game.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, example of uh, Gloomhaven and Founders of Gloomhaven. So one thing that's kind of interesting about Gloomhaven, if you look at the definitions of Ameritrash and Euro, according to BGG, the Board Game Geek side, Gloomhaven kind of more falls under the Ameritrash label than Euro, even though I feel like everyone is feels like it's more of a euro dungeon crawl it's kind of funny but yeah uh, founders is definitely gonna be a euro game so if you look at those two those kind of very different styles of gameplay
0: yeah i mean the tiny epic series is the only other one that fits into that because you have a co-op game in there you have a couple competitive games i know galaxies also has a solo mode in there so they are appealing to different audiences but i think you're right they are all trying to be bigger games you know the form factor So I think those fit more in the same line than some of these other things. But uh, I'm glad when they did Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea, which is the same combo of publisher and designer, that they didn't call it like Tiny Epic or now not Tiny Epic game, (laughs) whatever they decided to do. I mean, they obviously marketed it as the same combo. Same thing that Cool Mini or Not did when they did Rising Sun after the success of Blood Rage. So you can, ha- I guess, have games that are not in a series, but yet get that same synergy by promoting it as, "Hey, the designer and publisher of game A or B." So even if you don't put them in a series, I think there are opportunities to still br- build that equity without the series attached to it.
1: There's a uh, two of the series we haven't mentioned yet. I think might be worth bringing up, particularly uh, Co Names because they have a co-op mode and like Love Letter, and I feel like those games or even you probably throw Catan, and uh, i'm gonna say it you guys are gonna hate me but monopoly too yeah so for those games you're kind of just especially monopoly you're just slapping a different theme on it it's kind of the same game well there's a few differences and a few of them to be to be
0: fair so yeah I, I guess there are more of these series of games out there than i had realized
1: and some of them like codenames they have different draws where they're making like codenames disney is much more family oriented. And the Marvel one, I think you would need to have a decent understanding of the superhero genre, for sure, for that one. So they were targeting different audiences for for those type of games, so I think that's kind of fair. So
0: being that that's the case, how do you feel about, as a consumer, not as a designer, I understand the benefits for the designer, but as a consumer of games... Are you happy when a new game comes out in a series? Or do you feel like they're like, hey, wait a minute, they're just trying to milk me out of more money? Or what are your thoughts when a series you like comes out with a new game?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think it's a little bit different than an IP, for example, where I feel like when I see like an IP, an intellectual property I like a lot gets uh, thrown on the game, I tend to be a little more hesitant of that just because I've had the past experience where You know, this isn't anything like what I expect from this intellectual property. I want to experience that in some fashion. But when it looks at a series of a game, I normally have some exposure to the earlier uh, games in that series. And so I feel like those expectations are easier to meet in that. And when looking at the game itself, it's a little easier to analyze that, okay, compare game A and B. And I know I like game A and I see the changes in game B, so I can I can more easily realize that hey, you know what? Most likely I'm gonna like game B in this in this sense. So the series is has a stronger connection of me wanting to buy it than if we were to slap like an IP on it.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel the same way. I actually like when games come out in a series for two reasons. If I like the first game, I know I want to look at the second game. And if I didn't like the first game, then I know I don't need to look at the second game. And it's funny because you always see these threads when the game comes out, even if you didn't like the first one, you should check out the second one. No, I I don't agree with that at all. Like, you know, if you you didn't like the first one, you're probably not going to like the second one either. And I know that's an overgeneralization, and I know there's a lot of times that that is not the case. But for me, with so many games coming out now, it's a good filter for me where I can go, okay, I'm not going to worry about this game because I know I didn't like the first one that was similar to it. But... I did like this game, so let me go ahead and see what they've done to this one. that Maybe I'll like it more.
1: Yeah, there are a ton of games come out now where I feel like you can definitely wait and bide your time for a game that more aligns with your likes than trying to make yourself like this other game which you didn't like the first in the series. I Yep, that's a great point.
0: Well, and who would have thought there would have been enough cooperative games that came out to have a whole podcast on it? and we can't even keep up with all the cooperative games that come out every year. There are people asking us to review games that I've never even heard of. I mean, there are a couple games I had many reviews for last year, V Commandos and Unicornus Knights. I think most people never even heard of those games, even now. Yeah, a little bit of a look
1: behind the curtain. Um, we do have a spotlight on V Commandos coming up uh, next month, so you can look for more information on that. But um, when I gather the news to report on every day i mean the co-op genre is a small niche in this whole uh, hobby we're in and honestly when i'm trying to sort through the news i eliminate uh, more than half the news every other week just because we don't have the time to cover it all i can't believe there's so many games come out in such a small niche hobby so it's a great thing for us though a lot of games to play a lot of opportunities to explore
0: Yeah, and we're glad you guys like co-op games and you tune in every week. So we certainly appreciate that and keep it up. And we're trying to provide more content. I mean, with this merger, it's not just the podcast. If you haven't gone over to One Stop Co-op Shop, there's a lot of excellent information over there. Colin does his playthroughs. Mike is now doing what we call 5 and 5s. So it's going to be his top 5 things about a game done in 5 minutes. So if you haven't had a chance to go check out Colin's YouTube channel, definitely do that. This partnership we have is beyond just the podcast itself. So we're really trying to merge our two worlds here. Yeah, it's starting to
1: come together. At Gen Con, I was talking to a lot of different people, publishers and fans alike. And I some people recognize the YouTube channel, other people recognize the podcast, and some people recognize both. It's, it's really starting to come together.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think that's about it for this week. What do you think, Steve? I'm good. Let's wrap it up. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on another episode of co cast I'll see you later at the next stop. Thanks for joining us for another episode of co cast your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, check out Colin on his YouTube channel, One Stop Co-Op Shop and follow us on Facebook at One Stop Co-op Cast. Finally, join our Slack group by emailing us at MVP Board Games for continued discussion on these topics throughout the week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. We are going to be doing Forbidden Desert today, and our design discussion is going to be about games in a series, since now the third forbidden, uh, what would you even call it? Forbidden Game? Yeah, Forbidden Game, I guess, but I don't think they're that forbidden. Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> we, can't,
1: we can't talk about it. It's forbidden.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. It's
1: going down like Donkey Kong.
0: All right, I didn't that know Donkey awkward. Kong went down. I guess if you, like, jumped on his head, I, I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't he go down? Don't you, like, jump? I don't know. It's been a while since i played that. <laughs> I remember he jumps up and down at the beginning, and, like, all the levels kind of get crooked. And then he starts throwing barrels at you. I remember that much. It's
1: been a while. Now we're showing our age a little bit.
0: <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm 14. <laughs> if you don't believe me, then you're right. So, let's get... <laughs> If, however, any of your team expires from thirst, I love how they use expires there, by the way, instead of, you know, dies. <laughs> there's some uh, static
1: noise for a second there oh it might
0: be rubbing against my shirt oh okay that's cool okay yeah so they won't hear that that's because i'm using a separate microphone for my headset i don't put it in both ears because it feels really weird to me when i have (laughs) my headset in both ears i did that before and i kept like freaking myself out so i've stopped doing that (laughs) hey steve what's up i think this is going to be a forbidden goodbye okay (laughs) you were waiting for that weren't you